Truth Espresso, episode 30. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. What does it mean that Jesus died for me? Why was this necessary for my salvation? Hi, this is Daniel Minnick, the host of Truth Espresso, and welcome. Wow, it is hard for me to believe that this is actually episode 30. I would like to thank God for the progress that we have made so far here at Truth Espresso, and I hope that these episodes so far have been a blessing to you if you have listened to them. And if not, I would welcome you to listen to previous episodes and see how our progress has been thus far. This episode, episode 30, will continue, or rather conclude, the study beginning with episode 24, which was the Godness of God. And all the factors that we have discussed in these episodes, beginning with the attributes of God and going down to God in my place, this episode, are all integral Let's summarize what we have studied so far in these episodes, episodes 24 through 29, to see how everything comes together. Number one, the gospel harmonizes all attributes of God. Romans chapter 4 and verse 15 says, Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. The law of God worketh wrath? What about the love of God? Well, God is a God of love. But as we observed in episode 24, the godness of God, the attributes of God are all equal. They are all equally important. And as God is a God of perfection, then no attribute of God can overcome the other attributes of God. God is not lopsided, as it were. All of God's attributes are perfect, and they are all harmonious. So somehow we have to understand how God can be a consuming fire, according to the writer to the Hebrews, but also that he is love, according to the Apostle John. Are we talking about different gods, or does God change his tune, so to speak, at different times? Sometimes he's a God of wrath, sometimes he's a God of love, or are all these attributes, love and wrath, all perfectly consistent within the one perfect God? And we see that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 4.15 that the law, referring to God's law, the, the law that God revealed to his people Israel, giving his laws of holiness, because the law worketh wrath. 
for where no law is, there is no transgression. And transgression there refers to sin, refers to breaking the law of God, overstepping the bounds that God has given you. And so if the law worketh wrath, but the law is perfect, converting the soul, according to the psalmist, how do we understand this? I mean, shouldn't the law of God, the perfect law, just simply work love, work holiness, but it works wrath? Galatians 3 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul also says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Cursed? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law? Wait, I mean, God can't be sinister here. The law is not God's deception here to bring us down and to give us something that tricks us into a mournful fate here. Is that how we're to understand the law of God? No, if we really understand the law of God, that it reflects the perfection, the holiness, the righteousness, the justice of God then we can understand the place of the law and why it works wrath and why it is born us a curse and how Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Romans 5 and verses 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul tells us, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life." So it's interesting here that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, that great chapter talking about federal headship and how that Christ is the federal head of those who are reconciled to God and that Adam is the federal head of those who are fallen in him in sin. It is interesting that the Apostle Paul mentions love and wrath in relationship to sin here. And we see that the law of God in the previous chapter in Romans 4.15 says that the law worketh wrath. Is this God putting us in a strait between two, between a rock and a hard place? Or do we see two sides to the same coin or two attributes of the same God and how they all work together in Christ Jesus? The Apostle Paul says that God commended his love toward us in that He gave Christ, Christ died for us, and that through his death we are saved from the wrath of God. So why is it that God could love us and have wrath toward us pertaining to the same thing, our relationship to God in sin, and sin is the transgression of God's law? 
But the Apostle Paul says that also that we know that the law of God is holy, and we know that the law is lawful if used lawfully. So how are we to understand this? Is this a contradiction? I mean, how can God love us and God be wrathful to us? And how can that be reconciled? How can the love of God save us from his wrath? And how can those two attributes of God being perfect be reconciled with each other? And how are we then reconciled to God in light of his love and his wrath? So that was point number one. The gospel harmonizes all attributes of God, and I encourage you to listen to episode 24, The Godness of God, to see that, to see how we talked about the attributes of God and how they should be harmonized, how we should understand God as perfect. And a perfect God is not just all love. That's one side of the pendulum, and a perfect God is not just a God of wrath. That is another side of a pendulum. No, God is perfectly just, perfectly wrathful, perfectly holy, and perfectly gracious and merciful and loving, but they all have to be reconciled somehow. And that goes down to point number two. The gospel is intrinsically Trinitarian. And so episode 25 talked about the Trinity demystified. And if you haven't listened to episode 25, I would highly encourage you because if you have any questions about the Trinity or if you believe the Trinity, you confess the Trinity, but you've had a hard time being able to explain what the Trinity is, especially when someone challenges you, I can't recommend that episode more. I take the position in that episode to say that if you listen to it, my goal is to rid you of ever not understanding the Trinity for the rest of your life. My goal in that episode is so that you will never have any misunderstandings of the Trinity that You will know it. You will be able to articulate it for the rest of your life. And so, point number two, the gospel is intrinsically Trinitarian. I would like to read some passages of Scripture to show that the gospel involves not just the Father, or not just the Son, or not just the Father and the Son, but it is Trinitarian. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John chapter 6 and verses 37 through 40, Jesus telling some Jews who paddled across the lake to go see him because he had fed them miraculously, and he tells them words by which they are offended. And he said, quote, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me 
that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So we see the harmony here of the Father and the Son. We see that the Father and the Son perform different roles in the gospel here. The Father gives people to the Son. The Son does not cast them out, but he loses none of them. He will raise them up at the last day, and anyone who's given to the Son, sees the Son, believes on him, will have everlasting life. So the Father entrusts people to the Son, and the Son guards them from falling away. He keeps them. He loses none of them. They have faith on him. They believe on him. And so the Father and the Son both cooperate in salvation, but they perform different roles. Now let's look at John chapter 16 and verse 8. Jesus tells his disciples, quote, and when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, unquote. And Jesus is telling his disciples about the Holy Spirit in that passage. He is telling them not to be disheartened, that he will go away, but he will leave them another comforter, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Truth, as he also calls him. So when the Holy Spirit is come, he will reprove or convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so we see a role here for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts the heart of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies the gospel to the heart in John 16 and later on in verse 14 Jesus says he the holy spirit he shall glorify me for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you unquote so the holy spirit will glorify Jesus Jesus also tells the disciples that the holy spirit will not speak of himself and so we see that salvation the message of salvation is centered around the Son, Jesus Christ. The Father gives people to the Son. The Son keeps them and does not lose them. He saves them. He raises them up just as the Son was raised from the dead. And the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts the heart and points people to Jesus and gives people revelation and information. So, the Father gives people to the Son. The Son saves them and keeps them. The Holy Spirit convicts them and glorifies the Son. And so, salvation, the gospel, is intrinsically Trinitarian. And since these three persons of the Trinity all perform different roles in the gospel, think of it like a chain— when a chain holds two things together, how do we judge the strength of a chain? The strength of a chain itself is as strong as the weakest link. And so if any of these persons here were not God, if any of these 
persons, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, were fallible. They could fail. Then the chain here of salvation would be only as strong as the weakest link. And so I suggest that the gospel is intrinsically Trinitarian, because if the gospel of God cannot fail, then All three persons involved, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, must be equal and equally perfect and equally infallible to bring about salvation. And so point number one was the gospel harmonizes all attributes of God. Number two, the gospel is intrinsically Trinitarian. And number three, the gospel requires the incarnation. And so we're getting into some more of the recent episodes here as we discussed in episodes 27 and 28 and 29, we really went into the theology of the incarnation, really proving in episode 27 that Philippians chapter 2 teaches that Jesus Christ as the example of humility, how we should treat each other, how we should lower ourselves for the sake of one another, that Jesus as the example of humility actually as God himself, as the divine Son of God, co-equal with the Father, submitted himself voluntarily, taking on a full human nature, so as to become a servant and obey the Father and submit to the cross. We also looked at Hebrews chapter 2 in episode 29, And Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 17 said, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So Jesus did not become an angel, but he took on the nature of humanity. And as I emphasized in that last episode, the word for took there, epilumbano, is a strong action referring to basically giving something a big bear hug or clinging tenaciously to it. And so if Jesus Christ were merely created by God as a human and not really the divine son of God himself who took on a human nature with his divinity, then this verse would not make that much sense. And and if the word epilumbano simply had to do with Jesus showing his affection to save, like he did not embrace angels to save them, but he embraced the seed of Abraham to save them, then it doesn't make sense that God would create a human being walking on the earth, calling people his brethren, being virgin-born as a human being so that somehow he could save angels. That does not make any sense. And so Hebrews 2.17 says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. 
And so that verse is quite clear that he had to be made human in all respects, in every detail, so that he could fulfill the role of high priest and make reconciliation for the sins of humans to God. And so he fulfills that role of high priest properly because he was both God and man. And so then he can be that priestly figure, that mediator, that in-between person who could take our concerns as humans and reconcile the justice of God as being both human and God. Let's also look at Job chapter 9. Now, you might know the story of Job, that Job was actually possibly the oldest book of literature that we have ever written, at least Concerning the Old Testament, Job was possibly written even before Genesis was. And remember that Satan came to Job, the adversary, and told God that, you know, Job praised him. Job lived faithfully as much as he could, but that if God were to take away Job's blessings, then that's the only reason Job praises God and worships God, that if God were to take that away, Job would curse him. And so God allowed the adversary to take away Job's family, all his riches, and give him boils, make him suffer. And and yet Job still retained his integrity. He, he still blessed God. But we go to Job chapter 9, and Job is mourning and wondering why God would do this to him, and but he rightly recognizes his own state before God. So in Job chapter 9 and verse 20, Job says, If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. And so Job, the patriarch Job, even as he did not charge God foolishly, even as he had patience going through the suffering and confusion and wondering what is going on here, he still recognizes that when he considers God as his judge and how perfect God is, he says that he has no right to justify himself. He cannot stand there before his friends and say, I have done nothing wrong, at least in the grand cosmic sense of things, because he knows that God could see right through him, that God being perfect could point out something that Job had done wrong, because he recognized that he himself has to be a sinner. He says, if I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me, because he realized that God, as the perfect judge, could point out any sin that Job had committed. God was perfect, and Job was a sinner. And just like Job, we need to recognize that ourselves. If anyone says that he does not need salvation, that's the same as saying, I can justify myself. I can declare that I am perfect. I do not need salvation. I am sinless. And we go on to 
Verse 32 in Job chapter 9, Job says, referring to God, For he is not a man, as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. And verses 33 through 35, Neither is there any daysman between us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. We don't know how much Job understood, but we could guess that Job did not have the full revelation of salvation and how all of that would work. We definitely see the seeds of salvation planted in this oldest book of the Bible. Because Job also mentions his Redeemer. He also describes the resurrection at the last day. And here we see that Job recognizes that even though God understood and said of Job that he was perfect or complete and upright, one who fears God and eschews evil, that Job recognized that compared to the perfect demands of God, all he could do is stand before God condemned. He could not justify himself with his own mouth. But also notice in verse 32 that Job said, For God is not a man as I am that I should answer him. And we should come together in judgment. And also then notice the next verse. And Job declares, Neither is there any daysman between us that might lay his hand upon us both. And that word daysman means umpire or referee or even advocate. Someone who could who knows both sides of a dispute. And so the dispute apparent between Job and God at this point, Job was looking for a mediator. All he could see was a perfect righteous God that he couldn't even understand what he had done what Job had done wrong but this God was judging him and all he could do was say I can't justify myself God is not a man and I really need a mediator who could lay his hand upon us both So who is this mediator that Job was crying out for? Who was one who could lay his hand upon both man and God? Well, that would be Jesus Christ. Jesus did do that as our mediator. He laid his hand upon both God and man by being both God and man. And how did he do that? The Incarnation. The Incarnation is the means of atonement. The Incarnation is the only way through which fallen man can be made right with God, can be reconciled to God. Because if Job is our greatest example of someone whom even God can declare was perfect and upright and feared him, And yet Job still was a sinner in need of a mediator. Then we can only be left 
with Job's fear, as Job says, Let him take his rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Let this mediator take away the rod. Then would I speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. My friends, without a mediator, without Jesus Christ, without the one who could lay his hand upon us both, who could lay his hand upon both God and man, we are left with nothing but justice for our sins. And the only way that there can be a true daysman, a true mediator between God and man, the only way one could lay his hand upon us both would be one who is both. What more reason to believe, even in spite of all the evidence in the New Testament that clearly shows that Jesus is both God and man, what more reason to believe that Jesus is is as the mediator is both God and man, then Job's statements here in, in Job chapter 9. And so that was point number three, that the gospel requires the incarnation, and that naturally leads to point number four, the gospel is based on substitution. So let me read a few verses toward the end of Isaiah chapter 53, this is the famous passage prophesying of the suffering servant that we understand was fulfilled by Jesus Christ on the cross, according to Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it pleased the Lord, Yahweh, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and was made intercession for the transgressors. This passage is very specific and very striking indeed. How can it please Yahweh God to bruise this servant? How can he be pleased by putting this servant to grief? What cruelty is this? And yet we see that this suffering servant has made his soul an offering for sin. Now what do we make of this? Does this mean God just has to have something burned on an altar or something killed or see blood so he can be appeased, so that his wrath can be appeased? What is this, cosmic child abuse? No, this isn't just appeasing wrath. This is the fulfillment of God's attributes. This is all of God's 
attributes coming together. Verse 11 says that the righteous servant will justify many. How will he do this? For he shall bear their iniquities. This isn't just God basically setting up a punching bag so he can get something in effigy and and take a breather. No, this is justice in action because the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. The only way that sin can be perfectly satisfied is if it is fully paid. For if God simply were to forgive in such a way that he waives the penalty due for sin, and sin is defined as the transgression of the law of God, then that would make God a liar, my friends. If you don't understand that the forgiveness of God for sin is based on justice, then you don't understand forgiveness and you don't understand sin. For if God's law is perfect, converting the soul, as the psalmist says, and yet no one is converted by the law according to the Apostle Paul, and sin is the transgression of the law, and God says, if you do this, This is the consequence. The law of God must stand or God is a liar. So how can God not be a liar? Because the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. And so for God to be true, his law must stand. And if his law must stand, then every lawbreaker must be punished. The penalty due, the punishment Due to sin must be fully paid. The ledger must be balanced. The books must be complete. For God must be perfect. He cannot lie. He cannot be a liar. And his law is no joke. He cannot dismiss his law. He cannot violate himself. He cannot deny himself. And so his law must stand. And yet God, being a God of wrath and justice and righteousness, is also a perfect God of love and grace and mercy. But how do we reconcile that? Through the death of the suffering servant. For as Isaiah 53.11 says, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Let's look at 1 Peter 2.24. Peter, writing to believers, Jewish believers mostly, says, Who, referring to Jesus Christ, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, for by whose stripes you were healed. So how can this be? This is hard to think about. How can Jesus bear our sins in his body on the tree? How is that even possible? 
Notice that Peter didn't just say he took some personified thing called sin and he bore that on the tree. No, Peter said he bore our sins, plural, in his body on the tree. Don't ask me to explain how that works. I can't explain it. All I can say is I believe it and that this is a truly marvelous thing. This statement is amazing. How can Jesus bear my sins, bear the penalty of my sins literally on the tree? so that I can be dead to sins, and that I am free to live unto righteousness. How can by his stripes I be healed? This is a great exchange, and it is a scandal to the philosophy of this world. First Peter 3.18, the next chapter of First Peter the apostle says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. This is absolutely scandalous to the world. And as Christians, we might be tempted to just wonder, like, What's wrong with people? Why don't they want to hear about the love of God? I'm I'm trying to preach to them the love of God. I'm just trying to tell them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Why do they turn that away? Because even the world understands it's not just that simple. Because what we're proclaiming with the gospel is not just some squishy kind of love. They understand that there's more to it than that. And Christians, we need to understand that there's more to the gospel in Jesus just committing some act of love by dying just to show how much he loves us. It is not just love, but it is love that was fulfilled there. And it was also wrath and justice. And those come together. And this is the great exchange. This is a beautiful scandal. And we need to recognize that we bear the scandal of the cross. And we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ by power. So let me bring this into perspective. Let's just consider what we are talking about here with the gospel. You are on death row to face sentence that you justly deserve. You deserve death. For Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And as you are led to the doors that will open to reveal your fate, you think about some things. You think and you wonder, Do I really deserve this? But then also inside you think about the sin that you have committed and that there's no question that you deserve it. And then, as the doors swing open, you are shocked to see something so horrific. You could have never imagined just how horrific it is. You see the wrath of God pouring out like a roaring tidal wave, towering above you as far as the eye can see. And it is red and black and horrific, like a roaring 
tidal wave of flame and it's about to gush towards you and it is coming swift and fast and in your shock you realize i had never understood just how horrific the punishment is but at the same time your mind tells you you have nothing to say in your defense you realize fully that you deserve this there is no way that you can say anything in your defense and all you can do is close your eyes and cover your face and embrace the justice of the wrath of god and then you open your eyes and you look around you didn't feel that wrath but you notice that that tidal wave of flame has just passed over and you see someone lying on the ground dead and you look at that person who is dead and you realize that it was the judge who condemned you the judge is there and that judge took your place the incarnation of christ and his death and resurrection are the apex of all reality nothing we can observe in this fallen world can begin to make sense and give a full spectrum of reality without christ and him crucified without christ and him crucified without the incarnation without the atonement we are left with a universe we can't explain we are left with a fallen world with no explanation no completion we are left with something that cannot explain what perfection is perfection cannot just be justice perfection cannot just be love for god to be absolutely perfect he must be absolutely holy and he must absolutely be loving and all of that comes together at the cross the crucifixion alone against the religions of the devices of mankind just tells us what reality truly is nothing else can explain reality nothing else can make sense as christians we should not be embarrassed by the cross it is the remedy for everything it is the absolute apex for all reality and let the philosophies of this world die a thousand deaths for they cannot even begin to explain anything reality laughs and mocks them the apostle paul said in 2 corinthians 1:20 for all the promises of god in him are yea or yes and in him amen unto the glory of god by us and truly the universe itself sings and shouts jesus christ as the apostle paul said in colossians 1:17 and he jesus is before all things and by him all things consist or hold together May I encourage you Christians to realize 
the power that we have. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we hold this treasure in earthen vessels. Vessels of clay, we hold this treasure that the world cannot comprehend because we are but vessels of clay. And yet the truth of the gospel is so glorious and it just pierces and destroys everything in its way. I'd like to close this episode by reading from the epistle or the letter of someone called Mathetes, written to someone named Diognetus. It was written about A.D. 130. He says, He, the Father, himself took on him, the Son, the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own Son as a ransom for us, the Holy One for transgressors, the Blameless One for the wicked, the Righteous One for the unrighteous, the Incorruptible One for the corruptible, the Immortal One for them that are mortal, For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, should be justified than by the only Son of God? O sweet exchange! O unsearchable operation! O benefits surpassing all expectation! that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 